Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 50 of the podcast. Today, we're talking about the season finale of Star Trek Discovery Season 3, That Hope Is You, Part 2. The last 13 months have been a wild ride. I certainly feel that this has been a strong season, the best that modern Trek has given us so far. The description on Memory Alpha reads, As the emerald chain tightens its grip and the mystery of the burn is finally solved, Burnham and the crew have one last chance to save themselves and the Federation. Season finale. This episode was written by Michelle Paradise. It was directed by Olontunde Osunsanmi, and it first aired on the 7th of January 2021. Make it so. While I was watching the teaser for this episode, before the opening credits had even shown, I turned to my wife and I said, I know who directed this episode. It's the first time I've ever picked up on a director from this style. Olontunde Osunsanmi likes to do weird things with a camera, film stuff upside down and have the camera rotate around as the scene goes. Sometimes it's a bit much for me. I feel that if the filmmaking draws too much attention to itself, it pulls me out of the story. But there were some moments in this episode where I found it effective. We open with a beautiful shot of a gormagander flying through the skies of the simulated environment on Sukal's planet. We saw them in the background two episodes ago, but we get confirmation here that they are actually gormaganders, space whales. I think they look awesome. We encountered them in season one, but we didn't really get to see them in full flight like this. The holographic narrator explains that the gormaganders have spent more time on the Federation's endangered list than any other species. However, this image is of a pup found in 3052, so that gives me hope that the species may be starting to recover by the 32nd century. Sukal is still unwilling to listen to Saru talk about his true nature. Saru has to tread very carefully with him. If he causes Sukal too much emotional distress, he may trigger another burn, and that could destroy what remains of the Federation. It's a tricky situation. Saru's greatest resource in this struggle is his Kelpian nature, but how does he convince the young man of his true species, when the holodeck has made him look human? And I talked two weeks ago about how illogical it was that the holodeck made him look human, assigning seemingly random species to everybody. And then Adira shows up. This is the first time Kolba and Saru have seen Adira, so we're backtracking a little in time. This is probably happening while Michael and Book are hurtling through the transwarp conduit at the start of last week's episode. The holodeck has made Adira look Zahian. It's a nice little callback to season two. Adira gives them the medicine. It won't cure them, but it'll buy them enough time until they can be rescued. And then the real shock. Grey appears, looking like a Vulcan. And Kolba and Saru can see him. The holodeck recognises Grey as a separate independent life form, which is fascinating. The nature of Grey is still a big mystery and it's not resolved in this episode. We'll have to look forward to season 4 for further exploration of this, but the fact that the holodeck recognise Grey as a life form tells us something 
It's very interesting. And I love the way Colbert and Grey react to each other. Grey is just so thrilled to be seen. And Colbert embraces him like a long-lost son. It's pretty cool. It's so weird to see him in full Vulcan makeup, but with the blue hair and the big smile on his face. It seems that Grey can experience some form of sensation. When Colbert hugs him, he feels it. 32nd century holograms would be much more advanced than those we saw in the 24th century, so I can buy that. Meanwhile, a battle rages at Starfleet headquarters. The Viridian is bombarding the shield. I imagine it won't hold together forever. Voyager is ordered to fire on the Viridian. Nice to hear it referenced again. All other ships are ordered to fire on Discovery. It seems Vance is very willing to sacrifice that ship and crew to safeguard the rest of Starfleet. And as horrible as it is, I do understand that. Even taking the spore drive into account, it's a numbers game. All hope for negotiation is gone at this point. As soon as Booker told Osira about the Dilithium planet, she no longer needed the Federation. Book is no longer willing to help her get to the planet, because she killed Rin last week. It was sad to see him go, but he was the logical choice for a character to die. Not a regular or a semi-regular, but not a red shirt either. That meant his death hurt more. Osira has a truth serum, so she doesn't need Book to be cooperative. So, because Vance won't accept her proposed peace, and because she no longer needs them, she's gone from wanting to ally with the Federation, to wanting to obliterate them completely, out of spite. Tilly and the bridge crew's rebellion is going well, but it's short-lived, because Osira is turning off life support on their section of the ship. Not much they can do about that. Starfleet headquarters are about to lose their shields. Stamets appears, begging Vance to let him return to Discovery so they can rescue Saru, Culber, and Adira. Sadly for him, Vance agrees with Michael. They have to keep Stamets as far away from Discovery to ensure Osira doesn't learn the secrets of the spore drive. I'm not sure Vance speaks with enough compassion when he says, I know what you're sacrificing here, I'm sorry. But then he's in the middle of a desperate battle and the shield is going down. He did well to be able to speak to Stamets at all, given the circumstances. And that's when the Vulcans arrive. A fleet from Navarre. I caught it last week. <laughs> Marco sent a goodbye message to her mother, so Gabriel got Navarre to send the cavalry. Michael convinces Osira to let her hail Vance. She tries to talk Vance into letting them go. They can afford to lose the spore drive as long as Stamets is safely hidden away. The way she locks eyes with Vance through the view screen and says, Trust me, suggests some hidden communication between them. Michael has a plan. She needs him to let Discovery go so she can implement it. Vance isn't happy, but he lets them go. But Asira won't give the bridge crew their life support back. They had their chance, she says. Osira needs Aurelio to provide the truth serum. He's not willing to cooperate. He's seen what Osira is capable of, and the use of the drug, combined with Book's empathic abilities, will make the experience excruciating. Aurelio doesn't want to inflict that kind of pain on Book. Aurelio is a good man. We learn a little about how Orion physiology differs from human. Like a lot of characters on sci-fi TV, they may look similar to humans, but under the skin there are a lot of differences. 
But all this is just a metaphor for Osiris' feelings, her moral compass. It's much more complicated than Aurelia's. In other words, she can find ways to mentally justify all sorts of horrible things in her mind. I suspected last week that Aurelio was Osiris' husband. That seems not to be the case. She refers to his family, not our family. She's fond of him, but she keeps him around because he's useful to her. Zara says this is a no-win scenario for Michael, but she replies that she doesn't believe in those, which is a direct reference to Kirk. It was a little bit on the nose for me. That's Kirk's thing. Give Michael her own thing. This is where Michael starts to implement her plan. She pretends to give in, to want to convince Book to tell Asira what she wants to know. But as soon as she's close to him, she attacks the regulators, taking their phases and activating a force field. She and Book are now separated, and they run off into the ship. To reboot the ship's computer and restore the crew's command codes, somebody has to be present at the data core. I'm not sure that makes sense, logically, but it works for dramatic tension. We learn why Michael couldn't beam with her combadge last week. The Emerald Chain have got transporter inhibitors on the ship. Okay, that makes sense, and I see why they do that from a storytelling perspective. If Michael could beam anywhere, she wouldn't have to crawl around the ship, which was half the fun of last week's episode. Michael sends a cryptic message to Tilly. She wants the crew to set off an explosion on the warp nacelle. It'll knock Discovery out of warp. The dots can't do it because of reasons, so it has to be done by a human. We learn that Owo can hold her breath for a long time. Growing up on her home planet, she used to dive for abalone in the underwater caves. I believe they dive for abalone here in Tasmania. Anyway, that makes her well suited for this mission. Meanwhile, Michael and Book are going to head for the data core. But annoyingly, we get yet another reference to people consuming synthahol a century before it was invented. Saru speaks to Sukal of Kelpian cuisine. He admits that he is Kelpian, but he has no proof to offer. But you can see in Sukal's face that he's mulling it all over. Sukal admits that he has noticed that the hollow sometimes changes things. We learn why Sukal is so hesitant to talk about the outside. The Hollow told him the Federation would come from the outside to rescue him, but they never came. It's almost like he's lost his faith, because he feels let down. Of course, the Federation have come now, just not as soon as Sukal was hoping. This gives Saru an opening to explain the burn to him. Now he has Sukal's attention. He wants to understand because this is his life. Saru can relate to Sukal's hesitance to leave the only world he's known. Saru had to choose to leave Kaminar all those years ago. He's getting through to him in a way that nobody else could. Whatever is behind the locked door that terrifies Sukal, he has to face it. The monster from the folktale is trying to help him, to encourage him to face his fear. But Sukal isn't ready to believe that. He wants to see the Elder. <clears throat> Culver and Adira need to explore outside the edge of the simulation, but the radiation is too strong out there. Lucky for them, they have Hollow Grey. Radiation can't hurt him because he doesn't have a real body. Of course, he's also holographic, so his body shouldn't work outside the simulation bit of a plot hole there. 
but maybe it works. The ship they're on has holographic emitters. Holograms can probably be sustained anywhere on the ship, not just within the confines of the simulation. Kolber explains his theory about Sukal. He believes that because he was born on this planet, his body was adjusted to be able to interact with dilithium in unique ways. Dilithium has a subspace component. Sukal's scream travelled at the resonant frequency of dilithium's subspace components, and that's what hit every ship's warp core during the burn. Whatever happened to him 125 years ago was much worse than whatever upset him today. Grey learns that the ship is falling apart. They need Sukal to help them, and they need him to do it right now. Unfortunately, the Elder is gone. The program is degrading. The Elder's stories calmed Sukal, but he doesn't have that anymore. In a nice tender moment, Saru explains, You have us. You are not alone. Michael and Book are still making their way to the data core. We get an extended action sequence through the turbo shafts. Discovery's turbo lifts don't fly through a shaft as such. They float through open space, through rings that kind of appear and disappear as needed. It looks pretty cool, but is it logical? My issue with this is there is just so much wide empty space inside the ships for the turbo lifts to fly through that's just not needed. The whole sequence felt very Star Wars. Star Wars favours what looks cool over what is logical. You know, you'll have characters fighting with lightsabers surrounded by all this cool looking technology, which looks awesome, but doesn't appear to have any meaningful reason to exist. Think of that duel between uh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and Darth Maul in Episode 1. This turbo lift sequence looked great, and it was cool and fun, but I had to suspend my disbelief a bit more than I feel I should when watching Star Trek. Anyway, Michael arrives at the data core, but Osira has gone there to meet her, so we get our obligatory season finale fistfight between the hero and the villain. Anyway, Michael arrives at the data core, but Osira has gone there to meet her. So we get our obligatory season finale fistfight between the hero and the villain. It's another great action scene. We get to see Book kill Zara while Michael takes on Osira. Meanwhile, Oo makes it to the nacelle and sets off the explosion. The dot rescues her just before it explodes, essentially sacrificing itself. The episode plays the loss of the dot as a significant thing, but it's just an avatar. It's not like the destruction of this robot is going to mean the death of the Sphere Data AI. We saw last year how impossible it was to completely destroy that data. The reboot Michael is about to perform won't do it. If it were that simple, they'd have just rebooted the computer last year rather than travelling into the future. Osira almost kills Michael by pushing her into this weird wall of programmable matter. It reminded me of Superman 3, actually. That scene that seemed so creepy when I was a kid, when the woman gets eaten by the computer and turned into a cyborg. Completely ridiculous, of course. Anyway, Michael shoots out of the wall, kills Osira, and escapes. It was an odd ending to the fight, but again, it looked cool. So the ship is rebooted. Starfleet are now in command again. Life support is back up, and the ship is out of warp, so reinforcements can catch up. They still have a problem, though. Discovery has been sucked inside the Viridian. Michael has an idea about that, and Tilly tells her to implement it, 
effectively putting Michael in command. She is the ranking officer on the ship, even though Tilly is first officer. She's going to blow the Viridian up by ejecting Discovery's warp core. But how will Discovery not be destroyed as well? The only way is to jump away. Stamets can navigate the jump because he has tardigrade DNA. But Aurelio thinks that Book can do it as well because of his magic nature powers. Makes sense. It's a nice little development in my opinion. Book gives us a little hint of his backstory. We learned weeks ago that Cleveland Booker isn't his real name. Apparently it was the name of his mentor. He took that name and tries to live up to it every day. Interesting. Jumping the ship is proving harder for Book than they'd hoped. Michael keeps telling him to jump, but nothing happens. And then the Viridian explodes. This is fake tension. We know they're not going to destroy the Discovery and kill all the crew. So I kind of wished that they'd just shown the Discovery jumping away. Don't get me wrong, the lead up to the explosion was wonderfully tense, but the fake out just didn't work for me. We learn what Sukal is really afraid of. It's turning off the hollow. Behind the door are the hollow controls. He hasn't been in here since he was a child. Grey is afraid. Once the hollow is turned off, he'll disappear. Adira will still be able to see him, but that's not enough for him. Again, I like how Kolba comforts him. We've got you, Grey. We'll find a way to help you be truly seen. This moment, as Sukal goes to deactivate the hollow, is the emotional heart of the episode. Of the season, really. Once the program has ended, we find we're not in a holodeck as such, just a normal room on the ship. I understand that in the 32nd century, holograms can be projected anywhere, so in one sense, they don't need a holodeck. It, it, but it's still practical to have a dedicated room. I mean, shouldn't they have been tripping over chairs and things? The holodeck uses force fields to keep you in a confined area during the simulation. I suppose this could be done anywhere on the ship, but it just seems a little impractical. But for storytelling reasons, it makes sense for them to be here, where they can immediately see Sukal's mother. Sukal's next order is a brave one. Computer, show me what happened here, so I can be free. But his new friends have prepared him for this moment. So Sukal's mother had already put him in the simulation, so he didn't have to watch her die. She told him not to touch the controls until the Federation arrived, but he turned off the simulation. He saw everyone dead but his mother, and she was really sick from radiation poisoning. The poor kid watches his mother die in front of him, and he screams like he's never screamed before. He sends out the shockwave that caused the burn. I suspected this was going to be the case. Saru tells him he's no longer alone, and then Sukal turns around to see Saru in his Kelpian form. It's a beautiful moment. Saru just gained a brother. So now we know the full details about what caused the burn. What do I think about it? I suspect some will not like it. Two weeks ago, many were already saying, is that it? A Kelpian child screaming? And I can understand that from a certain perspective, it could feel anticlimactic. Like a weak payoff. But you know what? The more I think about it, I think there's a real poignance to the entire galaxy being ripped apart by the heartfelt anguish of a child seeing its mother die. 
and the sentimental family man in me really likes it. So, I'm good with this. I like it. This is definitely the best payoff that Star Trek Discovery, or Picard, has given us. So this is very much a positive response from me. It's very emotional, very character focused. Anyway, Discovery arrives just in time to rescue them, and they return to Starfleet Headquarters. The epilogue of the episode kind of ties together everything into a common theme. The human need to connect. Grey feels that very strongly. So Carl felt that need, growing up all alone with nothing but holograms to keep him company. The various scattered worlds have felt it on a global scale, the need to connect with the rest of the galaxy. This is hit home at the very end with a quote from Gene Roddenberry. In a very real sense, we are all aliens on a strange planet. We spend most of our lives reaching out and trying to communicate. If during our whole lifetime we could reach out and really communicate with just two people, we are indeed very fortunate. Stamets is very happy to be reunited with Kolba and Adira. He gives Michael a look. It's not quite a complete forgiveness of what she did, but I think there is some genuine gratitude that she rescued them. I think it'll take a while for these two to regain their former friendship, but I think it'll happen. It was nice to see a little glimpse of Dr. Pollard and Jet Reno. The Emerald Chain has fractured without Osira. That kind of feels a little sudden, but thinking about it, a fractured chain could be worse. A whole lot of independent mercenaries out there just looking to their own interests. But it's nice to see the Federation beginning to rebuild. The Trill have returned and the Vulcans and Romulans of Navarre are considering it. Saru is taking some time off, helping Sukal settle in on Kaminar. He is reportedly wanting to consider his future, which I suppose means he's not sure he wants to remain in Starfleet. I'm not sure I buy that. He loves his homeworld, and he'll be very happy to see it again, and he'll always have a bond with Sukal. But Starfleet is his life, his passion. And it's wonderful to finally see Sahil, the lone guy on the Federation outpost from the first episode of this season. He's now been commissioned as a Starfleet officer, with the rank of Lieutenant. I really wanted to see him again. It would be nice if we got to see some more of him in next season. And that's when Vance has a heart-to-heart -heart with Michael. First, nice to know that Vance is a family man. He has a wife and daughter off somewhere else, where they're safe. I love that. Vance has come to respect Michael's unique way of doing things. Michael and the other Discovery crew have had to wrestle with how to live in this new time, more than the people who are native to it, because they came from a different time. That has allowed Michael to see new ways of doing things, and she has taught Vance a thing or two. Now, I have very mixed feelings about what happens next. Vance offers Michael command of Discovery. Apparently it's Saru who wants Michael to be the captain, but Vance agrees. She's a little hesitant, but Vance needs somebody commanding the ship right now. There is an important job to be done. The dilithium from the planet needs to be distributed around the galaxy to those who need it. Only Discovery can carry out this mission. So Michael accepts. So now we have Captain Michael Burnham of the USS Discovery. Now on one hand, I like this. Michael has what it takes to be a captain. She wasn't quite ready when Giorgio first suggested it back in the Vulcan Hello, 
but she's learned a lot since then. She's grown up a lot. And this effectively solves what I've been calling the Michael Burnham problem. The idea that we have a lead of this show who isn't the captain of the ship, and so they have to make everything always be about her, because they have to constantly justify the fact that she is the lead character. With her in the captain's chair, well, it works just like any other Star Trek show. This is good for Michael's character. It's the next logical step for her arc. So I like that. But what about Captain Saru? I've loved Captain Saru this season. His arc throughout the whole season has been him learning to be a better captain. If he's no longer going to be captain, then it feels like that was all for nothing. And I hate that. I don't want Saru to leave the show. And I know he's returning for season 4, which they're filming right now. And I definitely don't want him to get demoted down to serving under Captain Burnham. So where does that leave his character? Commanding another ship? That could work. But it would probably mean we'd see less of him next season, as the show would follow Burnham on Discovery. This leaves me with great concerns for how Saru's character will be treated next season. And I'm not happy about that. So like I said, mixed feelings. It is cool to see the Discovery crew are finally wearing the new Starfleet uniforms. So looking at the crew's colours, Kolba is in white for medical, makes sense. Stamets is in science blue, obviously. Tilly is also in science blue. She was technically engineering when she was first started, I believe. I wonder what this means for her position as first officer. Will she serve as Michael's number one? If so, she should probably be in command red. Although maybe she'll be like Spock and have a joint position as science officer and first officer. If they do keep her as first officer, then they should probably at least promote her to lieutenant. Realistically, she should be at least Lieutenant Commander to be First Officer. Detma and Oo are both in Engineering Yellow, which is kind of weird. Oo might make sense, as Operations tends to be yellow, but I'd expect Detma as Helm Officer to be in red. But maybe the colours work a little different in the 32nd century than they do in the 24th. It has been a very long time. And another surprise, Adira is in Starfleet Uniform. So have they been fast-tracked through Starfleet Academy, given prior experience in the Earth Defence Force? Maybe. Maybe Adira will be a cadet serving on Discovery, kind of like Tilly was in Season 1. Book is also on the bridge, but not in uniform. The episode and the season ends with a classic Star Trek fanfare, and then the TOS theme plays over the ending credits. I'm not sure the TOS theme fits here as well as it did the last two seasons. But I think it's meant to signify that the Starfleet of the 32nd century are returning to former ideals of exploration and peaceful coexistence. Next season should prove interesting. I'm very keen to learn what it will all be about. I wonder when we'll get our first trailer. Not for a while. But I assume we'll get a few verbal tidbits from Alex Kurtzman or Michelle Paradise at some point. So that was Star Trek Discovery Season 3. As I said at the start, I thought it was a very strong season. The best so far. I really enjoyed it. Discovery has well and truly established itself as a Star Trek show, next to all the others at this point. I nitpick things from time to time, but no Star Trek show has ever been perfect. But the last 13 weeks have been a wonderful experience. Well, that has been quite a ride. 
It's been a lot of work putting together weekly podcasts in a timely manner. I'm glad I moved my release date from Saturdays to Mondays because it took just a little bit of the pressure off. But I'm looking forward to taking it a little bit easier now that I won't be covering a show that's airing for the first time. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but starting next episode, I'm going to begin covering Stargate Universe. It's a show that not a lot of podcasters or YouTubers have talked about. It's actually a pretty divisive show, a little like Discovery. I'm going to move back to a fortnightly schedule. I'll do my first Stargate episode next week, and then I'll be back the week after as well, because I'll be covering the three-part pilot over a course of two episodes. But then, I'll be taking my first week off. From that point, we'll be on the fortnightly schedule. I hope you'll continue with me in the future, but if Stargate isn't your thing, and you wander partways here, then thank you very much for joining me through Star Trek Discovery. This certainly won't be the last time we cover Star Trek on Nerd Heaven. I've always loved Star Trek, and it's my primary fandom. Anyway, there's a lot of very cool stuff to talk about in Stargate Universe. In a lot of ways, it was ahead of its time. It feels very much like a modern sci-fi show. It was heavily influenced by Battlestar Galactica, which in a way has shaped all sci-fi TV ever since, including both Discovery and Picard. I'll be here next week to talk about the episodes Air, Parts 1 and 2. Until then, have a great week. Live long and prosper. Make it so.